This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Stock trading in the U.S. has evolved rapidly in the last 15 years. Technological advances, the rise of algorithmic trading, and market fragmentation have combined to create a vastly different trading landscape. Now, the game is all about speed. Still, as Michael Lewis wrote in Flash Boys, the world clings to its old mental picture of the stock market because it's comforting, because it's so hard to draw a picture of what has replaced it. On this episode of the podcast, we're joined by a couple experts who can tell us exactly what the market looks like, and we're going to paint that picture for you today on Insecurities. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, helping you stay current on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. Good to be with you, Chris. On today's episode of Insecurities, we'll be getting into the weeds on the world of technology in the U.S. equities trading markets, how exchanges have evolved, the recent focus on speed and execution of trades, and trading algorithms that play an outsized role in our stock markets, changing the game for retail investors and institutional investors alike. Many of our listeners may remember the 2014 Michael Lewis book, Flash Boys, which discusses high-frequency trading, or HFT, and the market dynamics that led to the creation of the Investors Exchange, or IEX. We are honored to discuss these issues with two great experts in the HFT space, including a senior executive from IEX. I'm really excited about this one, Chris. We've got two excellent guests on the program today. Uh, I want to kick off with a couple of introductions here. So first up, we have with us John Ramsey, who is the Chief Market Policy Officer at IEX Group, a U.S. exchange that wants to level the playing field for investors. Before joining IEX, John led the SEC's Division of Trading and Markets. He's also held senior positions at the CFTC, the NASD, which is now FINRA, the law firm Morgan Lewis, and Citigroup Global Markets. John also co-hosts IEX's Boxes and Lines podcast with IEX co-founder Ronan Ryan. John, it's a pleasure to have you aboard. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. And I got to say, you guys are so smooth and professional, so um, I'm going to really have to be on my game. Uh, (laughs) It's great to be here. Excellent. Our other guest today is Dan Eisman. Dan Eisman is a quantitative trading analyst at MFS Investment Management in Boston. His responsibilities include measuring and improving execution quality in trading by partnering with traders and portfolio managers to optimize the process, as well as trading systematically generated orders. Dan joined MFS in 2019 after nine years at Goldman Sachs, where he was a vice president in the electronic trading team. He has experience working with an algorithmic trading suite to optimize trading, as well as developing content on trends in market structure and trading strategies. Most importantly, Dan was a co-teammate of mine at St. Bonaventure Swimming and is part of the famed Lane 6 training group. So, great to to reconnect with you and thanks for joining us today. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure to be here. As promised, we've got uh, we've got two great guests today. Absolutely perfect to talk about the topic of market evolution and high frequency trading. We're going to get takes from John and Dan on how and maybe why the stock market has become a more automated, more fragmented place, and what the U.S. equities market might look like in the future. But before we turn to them, uh, we want to take just a minute to set the scene. 
Yeah, so let's get into it. What happens when someone clicks execute in their Vanguard, Schwab, TD Ameritrade, or maybe even on their phone with Robinhood in their brokerage account to buy 25 shares of, say, Bank of America stock? As stock markets were first emerging in the economic landscape hundreds of years ago, you or someone you might have hired would have to physically go to a meeting place or exchange and verbally haggle with someone who owned 25 physical stock certificates of Bank of America to settle on a sale price for those shares. We'll talk a lot today about how technology has changed that process, but the steps inherent in the purchase or sale of stock by a broker on behalf of an investor fall into a few broad elements. In today's market, the broker can choose how to execute the bid to purchase those 25 shares of Bank of America. First, the broker could direct the order directly to the New York Stock Exchange, the NYSE, or as some call it, the big board, could also send it to a regional stock exchange like those in Philadelphia or Boston, or through a, quote, third market maker a firm that publicizes set prices to buy or sell stock at, ostensibly based on their insight into the market and their current stock portfolios. The broker may also utilize an electronic communications network, or ECN, that automatically matches buy and sell orders at specified prices. The broker may also decide to internalize the order or execute the trade against its own inventory of stock owned at the time. No matter the process, the investor ends the transaction owning 25 shares of Bank of America stock. However, the price paid for those shares can differ based on the actions taken by the broker to acquire them. Much has been made recently regarding the incentives of brokers in trading on behalf of investors, relationships with specific market makers, and the compensation for such arrangements. But we'll look to cover those issues in another episode down the road. And unlike hundreds of years ago, when you'd come home with your fresh and clean 25 stock certificates in hand, the custody of shares bought and sold today is a whole separate issue. Kurt, I know I've tried to explain a very complex stock market and trading in less than 90 seconds. Think you can top that with an overview of the venues and market structure? No, I, I'm sure I can't. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, I, I, I like the way you're describing it. And it, it reminds me of, uh, of something I read in the book Broken Markets by Saul Arnuk and Joe Saluzzi. I'm just going to borrow that really quickly because I think it, it really brings the point home. And so what they said is in the not so distant past, as little as 10 years ago, most stocks were listed on the NYSE or on the NASDAQ. When you, your mutual fund manager or other fund managers wanted to buy or sell stocks, a broker who was a member of the exchange would execute the trade on your behalf in fairly centralized locations. And and that I think is where we're seeing things change rapidly. On some level, that market structure still exists. And in many cases, investors still rely on brokers to execute trades on their behalf on the US stock exchanges, sometimes relying on a designated market maker to match buyers and sellers. But gone are the days of that sort of binary market structure where brokers go to traders on the floor of either the NYSE or the NASDAQ. The available venues and the rapidly splintering market have changed all that. Indeed, as former SEC Commissioner Kara Stein explained in a 2018 speech, quote, the digital revolution has morphed our securities markets into a complex web of trading centers. With more than 21 national securities exchanges, nearly 90 alternative trading systems, and an unknown number of other online trading platforms, approximately 11% of stock trading now occurs on ATSs, which is a nearly 50% increase since 2009, end quote. And just to emphasize how quickly things change, I mean, th- those numbers are just wrong now. I mean, there, there are more exchanges. Uh, there are certainly more ATSs. Things are evolving constantly. And this is one of the things that we talked about, Chris, with former SEC Commissioner Rob Jackson and George Mason Law Professor J.W. Verrett on a past episode. 
where we really explored uh, how the markets now have new players, new technology, and new incentives for brokers. We have for-profit exchanges that sell tiers of stock price information or data feed. And I'll, I'll note that IEX is, is not one of the exchanges that sells data feeds or price information. Thank you for uh, that little plug. Appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> you know, they, they sell that information to a web of brokers, algorithmic trading firms, and online trading platforms. We have firms clamoring to set up shop as close as possible to market data centers so that they can get pricing information milliseconds faster than their competitors. And we have, some would argue, a much less transparent, maybe less fair equity market structure than the simpler version, Chris, that you were describing earlier. So what are the implications? Well, as I mentioned up top, John co-hosts the IEX podcast, Boxes and Lines, and as luck would have it, he talked about some of these market structure issues on an episode of the podcast. And I think he summarized the implications nicely. He said the implications are a long-term decline in trading on exchange, displayed liquidity correlating with a steady increase in off-exchange volume, particularly internalized volume. So, uh, you know, I think what that means is the trading is happening elsewhere more and more all the time. Uh, but, you know, now we know that John can say this much better than I can. So I'm, I'm going to stop talking. Uh, <laughs> I'm we're gonna- really impressed. You guys did your homework. I feel like we got to, you know... <laughs> We try, yeah. uh, but let's let's turn to John and Dan, uh, who actually know what they're talking about. Yeah, and that's kind of a recurring theme, as, as our listener knows, on the Insecurities Podcast, as Kurt and I love to toss it to the people who actually know what they're talking about. So, Dan, you know, we'll, we'll go to you first in terms of the history of trading. Uh, how do practitioners implement investment ideas or strategies in the market today? Or, or said another way, how do trades actually get done? Why don't I start out by saying I'm speaking on my behalf and not the official view of my employer. This is mostly from Mike's and anything that I mention as my experience is not the view of my previous employer as well. As you mentioned, right in the past, if, if you wanted to trade, you would have to call up a broker. That broker had a decision to make. They could either trade it against their own book, which is referred to as the upstairs market, or they could hand it off to a clerk to run down to the floor and go to a specialist post and try and trade with that specialist, right? And it, as computer networking started to become a more mature technology, you started to see venues like NASDAQ and Archipelago, which is today the, the NYSE ARCA market, start to compete with floor traders because they were faster. And you could get those executions from those venues instantaneously. However, there, there were still a lot of issues with how do I get the best price, which is a, an issue that brokers have to deal with on a daily basis. And NYSE really dominated that market because they had the most liquidity. And they That means they had the best prices. So they, they tended to also have a monopoly on, on volume. As you started to see Reg NMS come into play and the major market centers start to buy up electronic venues, uh, you start to see kind of the market structure that we have today where there are 16 registered exchanges and, as you mentioned, a smattering of ATSs. Now, those exchanges are very special in a way, right? They have protected quotes, they have lit order books, and they have fair access. So they're really what, what feeds into... Uh, price discovery, as we refer to it. Now, there's also these ATSs that exist, as you mentioned, right? They're they're much more private. That their order books are hidden, so you can't see the interest, um, and you only know that you're a trade when you receive when you that you've traded when you receive a trade confirm. You you won't. There isn't pre-trade price transparency, if you will, that you know that someone is sitting there. Those have been 
very powerful sources of liquidity because they're, they're easy ways if I'm trying to buy or sell a large chunk of stock over an amount of time. If I interact with the lit market, there's, there's information that I'm giving to that market. Whereas if I'm interacting on an ATS, I have the ability to hide my footprint effectively a, a little bit better. So right, how does a practitioner actually use each of those venues to implement an investment strategy. And, and you know, the analogy that I like to use to for people who are outside of, of kind of the trading industry is, is to pose this almost tongue-in-cheek scenario where you have to buy all 10% of the toilet paper in New York City, right? You can try and go out and find a, a very large wholesaler that has a big chunk of, of the toilet paper market that's willing to sell it to you, Right. That may not exist. Um, and, and sometimes, similarly to the stock market, right, there's not always offsetting natural interest, we call it, um, to actually execute that trade. So another thing that you could do is you could go to you could go store to store uh, and start to buy them out of their toilet paper stock. But what you run the risk of is maybe a store manager calling up another store manager. And saying, "Hey, somebody just bought me out of my entire toilet paper stock," and and the other store manager may choose to start raising the prices. Right? That's a little bit more synonymous to that information leakage concept or market impact comment that I raised earlier. Alternatively, you you can either spread your purchases out over time, so you can go to one store uh, today and one store a week from now, and you can just keep amassing um, that that inventory. However, you run the risk that there's an exogenous price increase. Let's say, you know, a, a new Chipotle opened down the street and that jacks up the prices for toilet paper because now there's an increase in demand. <laughs> right. And, and so, you know, I think there are many ways that to, to interact with the market these days to actually get trades done, right? Trying to interact with natural liquidity is, is a pretty frictionless trade effectively, but it's not always there. And especially with the rise of indexing, you see a lot of investment managers whose portfolios look very similar. So everyone's trying to buy or sell the same stocks effectively, and you may not run into that natural liquidity. So you may be forced to go out into the market and 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 try and optimize this trade-off between the risk of a price moving adversely to you and the information that you're giving to the market by buying or selling a, a particular stock. Dan, and I think that's you've hit on two key points here. And that really hits on uh, one of the topics that we'll talk about a lot today is speed, right? And to me, you know, kind of as, as a lay person in the markets, at least from my perspective, speed is, you know, an, a corollary to price, right? So the faster a trade can be made, the faster you can go to the next Dwayne Reed and buy their toilet paper, the less time that store manager has to call the other store manager and inform them thereby getting a better price for the toilet paper and saving money. And then if you imagine Dan, you know, executing this strategy across New York City and Chris, myself following behind you, I'm not going to be able to have as advantageous a position or the ability to buy as much at the right price because I'm a little bit slower, right? I'm behind you in the queue. So I just wanted to put a finer point on that speed versus price discussion there. Yeah, I'm starting to worry that I'm low on toilet paper um, with all that uh, that analogy. I feel like I need to rush out. And uh, I was just, gonna, I mean, everything that Dan said, I think is spot on. I would make a distinction in terms of how the market structure certainly affects retail investors, meaning individual investors who are trading through, you know, their phone app or through another means versus 
institutional investors. Now, institutional investors like big pension funds and, and mutual funds obviously are trading for individual real life people, but usually in much larger amounts. Um, and so I think you, know, you heard earlier about internalization. Vast majority of all retail orders, um, individual people who are sending markets uh, orders into the market directly are just matched up by a single firm based on prices that are posted on exchanges, but they're not really exposed to the market. When you've got a big institutional order, you have to work it um, in the market. And, and that means you have to try to find liquidity without leaking information about the fact that you're in the market, which then will drive the price away from you. So that's one of the big challenges when you, particularly when you're talking about, you know, the speed-based advantages that a lot of uh, participants have, where they can detect that a large buyer or seller is in the market and then react to that information much faster than other folks can. Yeah, that's a good point, John. And, and one of the other layers here that, that come in is how to interact with those exchanges, right? We talked a bit about the choices brokers can make related to implementing those trading strategies. So, you know, sticking with you, Dan, how do those exchanges really play in and, and what tools and, and techniques have brokers used or, or created to help drive some of those strategies uh, to fruition? So like I mentioned earlier, right, the, the exchanges, the real power for, from my point of view is because they have protected quotes and, and they do feed into effectively finding where the market is for any security, right? As John mentioned, the internalizers and even the ATSs use those prices as reference prices. They can't match orders outside of the national best bid and best offer or the highest price someone is willing to buy versus the lowest price someone is willing to sell instantaneously. The way that that we tend to think about using those sorts of venues to, to achieve a trade is just like I mentioned, right? There, there is a trade-off between showing your hand to the market by going to a lit venue and trying to hide your footprint, right? There's one of those can be a, a very risky action vis-a-vis. I have a lower certainty of fill if I try to interact with a, an ATS, a dark order book, versus if I go and target a displayed quote to remove liquidity from the market, I have a much higher certainty of fill that I'm going to interact with that displayed quote. Although, you know, as you mentioned, right, speed is an advantage there. There may be someone who's faster than me. My market data feed may be slower. My ability to process that data feed may be slower than others. So by the time I try and target that liquidity, it may have, have canceled and moved to another price level. Uh, but it's still a much higher certainty that I can interact with that order than if I try and hide my footprint and wait for someone to match off with me in, in an ATS. And, and really, that's from my past experience, right? That's the trade-off that we try to make. If, if I'm trying to trade a very large institutional-sized order, I have to kind of optimize my, my risk effectively. How much am I willing to let the market go where it wants to versus how willing am I to have maybe have a little bit of impact on the price by removing liquidity, but that reduces my market risk of the market moving away from me. So far, we've sort of been talking about, you know, what is the fundamental role of exchanges or trading platforms, you know, to match up 
would be buyers and sellers and you know how do traders you know like Dan use those different platforms to do their to do their job or to execute on a strategy i think by talking about lit markets and and dark markets or you know ATSs uh talking a little bit about the data feeds what we're hinting at are ways that the exchanges themselves have changed or how their functionality has changed even if they're still doing the same job they're doing it a little bit differently and and so John I want to talk to you a little bit about what those changes have looked like what you know how has there been some market fragmentation um you know what is the impact of public and private data feeds and you know I know that these were some of the issues you thought a lot about while you were uh, heading up the SEC's division of trading and markets so you know what can you tell us about how how the exchanges have changed over time so as you indicated, I mean, the markets have changed in so many different ways, exchanges uh, kind of along with them. As we've been talking about, all trading really has gravitated to an all-electronic um, model. So uh, virtually uh, very little trading happens on the floor of an exchange anymore. It's all electronic matched in one of these data centers um, in New Jersey. Um, and so that's true of exchanges as well as other kinds of platforms. Uh, the one, one way in which exchanges continue to be different is that they are the one type of trading venue where prices are broadly displayed to all market participants. So if you want to send in an order, uh, the so-called limit order that identifies the price at which you're willing to trade, um, if that's going to be broadcast to the market as a general matter, it has to be um, sent to an exchange. So they continue to be different, but exchanges certainly look dramatically different than they did 20 years ago. Uh, one, one significant difference is that exchanges have all demutualized. They all used to be owned by all of their member firms, um, including firms that traded for customers. So in some sense, there was a natural alignment between their interest and the interest of the people who were ultimately um, submitting orders. Now they're public companies like uh, publicly traded companies, like any other company, their objective in life is to you know, make money for their shareholders. Um, so that means that their orientation has changed um, substantially from what it used to be. Another significant difference is the impact of decimalization. So it used to be that prices were traded in uh, basically six cent increments. The SEC mandated that the minimum increment be changed to one penny for most stocks. Um, that substantially increased um, the amount of volume, the importance of speed in terms of getting an advantage over people, other traders in the market. Um, so over time, you've seen a much smaller size of trading. Um, that's that's happened really across the markets. Um, and you talked about the need for market data. So because of this importance of, of speed as a competing factor, traders and brokers um, trading for clients um, need to know how prices are changing at really a microsecond level of precision, so like millions of, of a second. As a practical matter, that has led to the need for getting direct market data from each one of the large exchanges in order to really compete. So one of the big controversies in the market, one of the things that we've been vocal about is that um, exchanges really uh, have the ability to squeeze market participants for paying for market data uh, in order to in order to survive in the market. So those are just some of the ways exchanges still have a unique role to play. Um, they're still very highly regulated, uh, but the landscape looks dramatically different than it used to. 
it certainly does. And, you know, I think the the types of innovations that you're talking about really are driving the, quote, need for speed, right? Whether that's the tick size or just the, the change to a more digital uh, trading environment. Dan, I want you to pull this all together for me, if you can. I mean, explain to me from from your seat, how have these innovations really driven the markets to look kind of like a speed race? Yeah, the first really big thing that I would point out is there's been a, a huge increase in computational power, right? So, so now machines are able to process massive data sets in, in a very short amount of time, right? And as John had mentioned, right, the scale of time of a lot of these transactions has gone from minutes to seconds to milliseconds to microseconds. And so you, you've started to see a lot of players invest a whole lot in technology to be very fast and nimble in how they're processing data. It also starts to really allow for very granular data, right? So, so whereas you used to see, let's say, a last trade or an NBBO, now you're able to see interest down in the order book and actually see order by order feeds. And, and that's very powerful from a market maker's perspective because they're able to profile these things in a, in a timely way. Or even, let's say, someone who has, quote unquote, a high frequency trading profile can take in those sets of data and try and gleam trends that we may not be able to see just because you know our brains aren't able to, to process it in that amount of time. As for speed, right? no one wants to be the last person to trade before the price moves against them. And so if I'm a market maker, and professionally I am not, but this is these are the sorts of things that, that we kind of have to think about in when, when you're designing an algorithm to interact with the market, processing the, those feeds efficiently is super important if I see, let's say, a signal that the market is moving into me, whether that's quote imbalance by looking at published bid and ask interest, or whether that's trade imbalance by looking at maybe the last uh, five trades were uh, on the ask, and that mean that may mean, or that's a signal that the price is potentially moving up. I really don't want to be the last person there with interest when I have a, a, an expectation that the price is going to move against me. So you've seen market makers and, and other high frequency players invest very heavily in the space to process so that they can efficiently cancel or move their quote and not be, for lack of a better term, picked off where now they have to try and make a profitable trade when the market has moved one quote level away from them. So, you know, that that's a really a first order effect on their profitability. And obviously no one who's making money based on spread trading and spread capture in the market wants to to be unprofitable on their trade, right? The goal is to to be profitable on almost everyone. And I, I actually think that's one of the things that IEX does very well, in my opinion, is, is using their crumbling quote indicator on order types like the discretionary peg that allows an institutional player like, like myself who may not have that level of technology or even our brokers that that may not have that level of technology to to be protected in the case when the market is moving against them it's something that that i've seen the value in definitely from the data that we collect on transaction costs 
And you know that's really one of the, the big differentiators between them and other exchanges in the space are, are trying to use innovations like that where they have the computational power to the advantage of the institutional or, or other trading communities. You know, I've heard a lot about how high frequency trading or HFT, you know, can be viewed from a variety of angles. You know, in some instances, it can be seen as the utmost level of efficiency and, and automation uh, in terms of getting that interest and that you describe uh, appropriately spread across those, those players in the market. If you've read Flash Boys, uh, for our listeners out there, obviously, you know that the hypothesis in that book is that high frequency trading is is almost an unfair uh, exchange in the market where those with more computational power and more resources to set up these systems and participate are getting an advantage over the mom and pop investors down the road. So, you know, there's a lot of different ways to view the issue. John, you know, you were really at the the helm with tradings and markets at the SEC while this speed race discussion was happening. Uh, can you talk a bit about what the commission's views were uh, at the time and how those views might have evolved in your opinion since? It's a complicated story. I left the SEC in 2014, about the time that Flash Boys came out. And and so I think there was a bit of a somewhat conflicted view within the agency. It's important to recognize that that some of the regulatory changes that the SEC had put into place in some ways did really increase the emphasis on speed by making other kinds of electronic markets more competitive with exchanges. And so as a result, all of the market venues in, in order to compete had to focus on trading faster and faster. And so I think in some sense, they were a little bit defensive about critiques of that system. I think they were intent on um, sort of making the point from their perspective, the market was not rigged. So, you know, that was the term that a lot of people were referring to. And I I think that the U.S. markets, um, by comparison with other markets in the world, very inefficient and and all of that. But I I think there has been a growing recognition during the time that I was there and since then that the benefits from increased technology had not um, been all that evenly distributed among market participants. As as Dan was sort of alluding to, in any one trade, um, the outcome is kind of binary, right? Uh, You either, you get a a better price or a worse price. Um, And so if the determinant of whether you get a better or worse price is just based on how fast you can trade in comparison to everybody else, then it means that participants that can afford to just focus on the speed of trading and invest in the fastest available technology and connectivity, et cetera, end up winning much more than others do. So I think there was a recognition that that was a growing issue. I don't think there was any consensus at the commission about what could be done about that from a regulatory perspective. You know, no obvious way that you can regulate um, that issue away. And, and I think that's really why IEX came to be um, interesting and meaningful is that we were the first entrant to really come on the scene and try to provide a private sector solution that de-emphasized speed, um, tried to level the playing field a little bit so that firms like Dance, when they placed orders on exchanges, could have a little more comfort that they were going to get a fair deal. That's sort of a perfect segue to the, to the next question, but... You know, a point that I want to make is that so much of the technological innovation, the changes in trading strategies in tools that traders and firms can use to place trades has really sort of settled in, right? I mean, a lot of what we're talking about are, you know, how these markets have evolved over the last five or 10 years. But at this point, 
a lot of these things exist in the markets today. And, you know, John, I think you, you made the point, it's absolutely right, that some of those technological capabilities are, are not evenly distributed among market participants. So you find these markets where, you know, folks are trying to play in a space and, and they sort of don't all come to the game with the best players available. So, you know, IEX and, and perhaps some others are trying to find ways to, to take speed out of the game or to level the playing field. But surely there are still what I will call battlegrounds in the market. So, you know, John, what are are the battlegrounds today, whether that is, you know, from an exchanges or a trader's perspective, or even from a regulatory perspective, what are the types of issues that, that we're fighting about now? There's a number, um, for sure. With regard to the speed race and the advantages that come with that, I think, you know, what one of the big debates has been how much flexibility should individual exchanges have in uh, limiting these speed advantages, um, right? So we, so IEX has been through two pretty significant drawn out debates that have gotten pretty intense over first our instituting what people came to call our speed bump, um, which I can talk more about more recently, a, uh, a new order type that we have just introduced that helps to give in particular institutional um, investors and market makers an ability to post orders and more of an incentive to post orders on exchanges. So that continues to be one kind of significant battleground. Another one related to that is just the movement of more and more trading to what you know, people like to call them dark venues rather than displayed uh, venues on, on exchange. The increasing percentage of trading that is not exposed to the market generally. So I think there's a recognition that exchange trading, displayed transparent trading is really important for price discovery, for the ability of lots of different kinds of participants to interact and try to figure out what the fair price level should be. The market data we talked about is also continues to be a significant uh, question and issue. Just the the significant and increasing cost to acquire exchange proprietary market data in order to be able to survive in the market. And then the issue of rebates. So exchanges often incentivize people to send orders by offering to pay rebates to people who are willing to post. And that can create a, a fair amount of complexity and causes the potential for conflicts of interest. All of those continue to be very hot topics. I would say that that some of those kind of battlegrounds that there's very differing opinions, right? And, and I would point out that maybe the not coming to the field with the best team is a, a little bit of a, of uh, a straw man, effectively, right? We're trying to compare two different investment objectives, effectively, right? A market maker makes their money on capturing spread or, or, or trying to to basically buy and sell at the same time effectively and, and just capture the difference in that MBBO. Whereas an institutional investor or a retail investor, their investment timeline is, is, is much, much longer. And so, you know, it's not necessarily cannibalistic. What, what profit a market maker or a high frequency trader has is not necessarily cannibalistic to the, the alpha effectively from an, an institutional investment idea. So you're kind of looking at, at a market where you have a bunch of different heterogeneous investment profiles. And, and I think sometimes 
a market maker, a high frequency player, or, or even a, a stat art player can provide liquidity to the likes uh, of me, reducing my transaction costs, even though that may come through a mechanism that where they have to compete with each other on speed. They may not have to compete necessarily with me on speed just because I'm trying to get done, you know, a hundred thousand shares or a million shares, and they're really trying to get done 200, 300 shares at a time. So if I hear you, are you saying that a an unintended consequence and, and perhaps a good one of the HFT firms sort of battling with one another is that there's more liquidity in the market for institutional and retail investors? Yeah. I mean, if you look at academic research and even if you were to look at market structure research, right? transaction costs on relatively large portfolios have gone down over time. Now, part of that is a, a byproduct of Reg NMS. Part of that is a byproduct of electronic markets. Uh, and part of that is a byproduct of, of there are more, quote unquote, liquidity providers in the space, right? Where you had to trade in, in minutes or seconds, you're willing to put less money to work if you're a market maker on either side of the quote. And, and we're really seeing a market right now that has, you know, without going into volatility shocks, pretty deep and, and liquid markets, right? If I'm trying to trade a thousand shares of SPY, the S&P 500 ETF, I have incredibly high confidence that I can get that done with on a penny spread. Whereas if I was trying to achieve that same trade, you know, five or 10 years ago on, a, let's say, GE or something like that, I may be worried that that there isn't enough top of book liquidity for me to actually interact with. So I, I not to say that there are no instances where an institutional investor is hurt, their their alpha is hurt by a market maker, or, or that that there isn't such a thing as latency arbitrage. I do think that 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 the frequency of that has gone down over time. But I think it, it is important to note that a high frequency trader is an important part of today's market structure. Dan makes a really good point, which is I don't want the listeners to get the impression that high frequency trading or high frequency traders um, as a group are, are bad for the market as a group. It's uh, it's a term that a lot of people have used in a very loose way, but it covers a whole lot of different kind of activity. So firms that are you know market makers that are quoting in particular on exchanges, both buy and sell um, prices on a regular basis um, are necessary, necessary part of the ecosystem. You need to have people provide those parts of that, that kind of liquidity. And today, in today's market, they have to use high-speed technology in order to do it. There are other trading strategies that um, are more specifically designed to try to figure out where prices are going. And then, you know, the term is sort of pick off those quotes just before prices change. And those strategies too are perfectly legal, but you know, they do, in, in our view, disincentivize people from quoting and being willing to express their trading interest uh, you know, out loud as the saying goes. Our view is not that any of this activity is wrong per se or, or is illegal or should be illegal. It's just that exchanges and um, market participants and the exchanges in particular should be free to innovate in ways that limit that kind of activity. 
One of the things that's coming through here is that HFT is now, and John, I think this was your point earlier, it's now part of the ecosystem, for better or worse. Dan, you kind of hinted at uh, some of the things IEX is doing to maybe take speed out of it a little bit, or you know, to use your word, try to come up with tools or capabilities that will make it less likely that an, an order will get picked off. So John, what, I mean, why don't you tell us, where does IEX fit into all this? What are some of the things that you're doing, you know, speed bumps, limit orders, What's happening at IEX? Sure. So to pick up on Dan's explanation of kind of some of the, the problems that institutional investors have, you know, in dealing with, with some of these strategies, just to use kind of a, a basic example, if you are, if you're a market maker, if you're an institutional investor and you want to um, advertise your interest to trade at the best price in a particular stock and the stock is trading at $10 a share is the best bid, so-called national best bid in the market at that point, best price that's disclosed on an exchange. If the price changes, um, or to put it a different way, if there are uh, trading firms out there that are able to detect uh, because they have the fastest available market information, that the national best bid is likely to change within the next, you know, again, we're talking about milliseconds of time in the next two milliseconds and can sell to you just before the price uh, decreases, the best bid in the market decreases, then, you know, that's uh, advantageous trade for them. It's a disadvantageous trade for you. And then, if those kinds of trades multiplied over the you know number um, thousands millions of times um, in the market, obviously add up, and they really create a disincentive to people displaying their orders on exchanges because of the the substantial losses that they incur when these so called pickoffs happen. So. One of the things that um, IEX has uh, just introduced is a new order type where we take in all of the same fastest market data uh, that, that are available to any other firm. And when we detect that the market is going to move against the resting order, the party that is displaying um, an order, move in a, in a direction that's adverse to them within the next two milliseconds, we will move the order, um, the price, we will reprice that order in a way that protects the order from being um, executed at, at a disadvantageous price. The name of this is called the D-limit order type. Yesterday, in fact, was the first full day when we introduced that order. Congratulations. It's right on time. <laughs> it, yeah, very timely. Yes, yes. Um, we, had a, we had a good first day yesterday, so it couldn't have come up with better timing. So again, the point here is basically just to say not that regulation should prohibit um, any of the kind of activity that we've been talking about, but exchanges in the market needs to be able to innovate and evolve in ways that, uh, that give people choices. Um, so the idea behind this particular order type is to give people either like, you know, a firm like Dan's firm, when they want to post orders on an exchange or a market maker where they want to be able to quote on both sides of the market, a little more comfort that they have a tool that they can um, do that without suffering uh, too much in the way of losses for, for doing so. We'll see where things go. But it uh, I, again, I think from our perspective, it's less about uh, regulating the problem away than allowing the market to develop solutions that, that can help to address these problems. 
And that's a great kind of look forward, John. You know, we're, we always want to try to provide our listeners with a little bit of what you guys are seeing in your roles that will lead to the future. Uh, you know, HFT obviously came out of the market environment that developed in the late 90s and early 2000s. And, and Dan, you spoke a lot about how computing power has really changed the game for how HFT can and, and does operate uh, in today's world. So if you could just talk a little bit about where you, what you see happening next. Dan, we'll start with you. You know, what's the future of, of high frequency trading in your opinion? There's been a lot of talk about how do we uh, go kind of beyond the bandwidth of a fiber optic cable. And so you've seen in, in high frequency space or even in, in the broker space trying to set up networks that transmit through the air at higher speeds than are, are able to achieve, be achieved through a, a fiber optic cable. And, and you know that I think that's one thing that, that will kind of drive the speed race a little bit more. I, I think you've also seen a really strong increase in technology spend from brokers and, and algo providers to bring their computational power up to the level that many of the high frequency players are at so that they can process a lot of the same signals that the high frequency players are and, and try and take advantage of those to the benefit of someone like me. Uh, and, and I think that's really the kind of next step in this evolution. And, and I don't know, I, I'm terrible at forecasting the future, but you know, there are a lot of really smart people that are behind this problem right now that every day are trying to glean new insight from the data that the market puts out. And they're coming up with new signals all the time. So I'm sure that you know they're going to try and stay one step ahead of the brokerage community or, or the community of uh, institutional traders. But it's going to be still kind of center around technology and computational power. And obviously things like a financial transaction tax or a change to regulation NMS to change the shape of those data feeds or the speed of those data feeds, that that will really drive outcomes in that space as well. That's sort of exactly where we want to go next. And, you know, John, either wearing your former SEC official hat or just as, you know, someone who works at an exchange, which is a highly regulated entity, uh, what do you think the future of regulation in this space looks like, whether that's changes to NMS or, or other things? Where are we heading from a regulatory perspective? Well, that's a good question. It depends on a lot of things. Uh, depends on what the next administration um, and, and at the SEC looks like. But I will say that I think that you're unlikely to see a broad overhaul of the uh, the regulatory system or a lot of new regulation that prescribes how people can or can't trade. I do think that most um, change in the market will really come from market evolution with uh, exchanges and other participants um, trying to innovate in ways that um, increase the amount of choice that is available to people. I do think that the SEC is going to continue to try to create more transparency around um, things like exchange prices, both transaction fees and what they charge for market data, and continue to scrutinize um, fee increases. Um, so, you know, they have an obligation to determine that basically everything that exchanges do is is fair and equitable and serves the public interest. So I think they'll, they'll continue to focus on that. But I don't think you're going to um, see a ton of 
new regulatory requirements trying to micromanage how it is participants um, interact. But hopefully, they will continue to give exchanges and other players a fair amount of flexibility to innovate on their own to, to meet people's needs. That's my prediction anyway. <laughs> I like it. I think you're absolutely right. It's going to depend on some level on what the makeup of the commission looks like, which may be very different depending on the outcome of the election in, in November. So wait and see. I, I suppose that's where we are at the moment. Um, but yeah, I appreciate you helping us gaze into the crystal ball a little bit. I enjoy gazing into the ball uh, with, with you guys anytime. Um, I would invite any and all of you onto boxes and lines. Yeah, well, uh, we'll, We're going to take you up on that. Be careful. <laughs> That's yeah. true. And unfortunately, John, one of the kickers, if we ever have a repeat guest, is we always go back to the previous episode and see how right they were. So oh, all Jesus. the right. well, from, yeah. from Dan and, and you, John, will be evaluated with a, a fine-tooth comb at a future episode. <laughs> Can't wait for it. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guests, John Ramsey of IEX and Dan Eisman of MFS Investment Management. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and potential topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag Insecurities Pod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at Akamoff CPA. And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. PLI, Troutman Pepper, and RSM do not make any representations or warranties, express or implied, regarding the contents of this podcast. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.